As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm going to make the and as long as I possibly can every single time. My name is Taylor Rockwell. On this episode, we're going to be taking in-depth looks at five more Americans in the US MNT pool. They would be Serginho Dest, Tim Weah, Jesus Ferreira, Luca De La Torre, and young Chicago Fire goalkeeper Gabriel Slonina. To talk about those guys, and probably some other stuff as well, I'm joined by two gentlemen who have all of the answers you're going to need. Up first, a man who knows exactly how to solve the number nine situation for the U.S. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Yeah, I'm already working on Robert yep. Lewandowski's paperwork. So as soon as that goes through to FIFA, we are good to go, folks. I, it's an innovative solution, Joe. Fingers crossed. I like it. Uh, so uh, that, that's a good solution there. We'll see what we've got elsewhere because with us today as well is a fellow who studied the tape, has prepared an official ranked list of the 20 best goalkeepers in the pool and who should start against which opponent. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor. Yes, that's exactly what uh, I have done. I do indeed have all the solutions. Mm-hmm. I've heard Americans really like it when yep. Brits tell them how to fix their soccer teams and soccer <laughs> culture. So that's what I'm here to do. No more huddles. No more huddles. That's how you solve them. Oh, no more huddles. Don't get me started on that. Wow. Jeez. Don't get I you started on huddles, Graham. You, you're, you're anti-huddle. Is that what I'm hearing? No, 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 no. I just can't <laughs> believe that Marsh is getting dug out for that when yep. as someone who uh, lives in Glasgow, there's a team here who have been doing huddles for like 100 years. Um, but yep. yeah, apparently now Jesse Marsh has brought college basketball to... Uh, the Premier League. Don't don't get me started. I'm already getting started here. <laughs> I like it. I like and it, it's like Phil Brown to me is the most notorious like usage of a huddle ever at at Hall City when he like kept the players on the pitch for halftime. Was it like that one was the one where I understand why there was consternation, confusion, criticism. Uh, Jesse Marsh just having a talk. I don't know about that one. I, I don't have as many issues. But Graham, I'm glad that you've come out confidently on the side of anti-huddle and anti-America. Thanks for that. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that will get me, certainly the anti-huddle stance will get me in trouble where I live. <laughs> yeah, it will, it will get you, I guess, like uh, regular appearances on a couple different talking head shows in the UK, though. So there's that. Yeah, and, and they, they pay better than the other shows. <laughs> that's, the, that's the best paid ones. So, you know, can Perfect. probably afford my <laughs> diesel bill a bit more topical there. <laughs> 
I feel like I forced Graham into a corner that I did not mean to force him into right from the <laughs> jump. So I'm going to transition us back to talking about the actual substance of today's episode. We're going to break down those players I mentioned, talk about where they fit, uh, what's good about their game, what they need to work on. On previous episodes, we've gone in-depth on Miles Robinson, Walker Zimmerman, Kevin Paredes, Zach Steffen, Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, Jesse Zardes, Christian Pulisic, Anthony Robinson, Eunice Musa, and Tyler Adams. Uh, those are over two different episodes, so if you want to hear about those fellas, go back and listen to those. But for the purposes of today's show, it's worth mentioning that we've got three World, Qu- World Cup qualifiers later this month. Uh, we've got Mexico away on March 24th, then we're home to Panama, and then the final game away to Costa Rica. And I want to mention that to say that I, I think I'm feeling strangely optimistic, having watched some of the footage and looking at the way I think the U.S. is trying to play. We've talked about that previously many, many times. But it, it feels to me like these are definitely three of the four toughest opponents we could face. But I think it's all three needing results or needing to get a result against the United States if you're Mexico. And I think that means they're going to be a little bit more open than they might have been if we met them previously. Costa Rica at home uh, are always a problem for the United States. But I could see them maybe just being a little bit more open than they would be otherwise if this were the final game and they were comfortably in second or third. Panama, I think, need to get something Mexico do, too. And I think with the U.S. having some players that are rounding into form, obviously lots of injuries too. But I do feel like this team could uh, make a bit of a statement in these games, and I really hope that they do. So with that sort of groundwork laid from my perspective, let's get into our list of scouted players, most of whom are safe picks to be on the roster. Let's start with Serginho Dest. Not too long ago, he was surplus to requirements at Barcelona, was definitely on the move. Now he's back in the team. He and Xavi are basically best friends, is what I understand. Joe... <laughs> Dest has been inconsistent for club and country in the past. His current situation seems about as solid as it's been since his move to Barcelona. How optimistic are you about him right now? I think he's playing well, and he's getting minutes. This is one of those cases with Dest that I really wish we had a better understanding of what was going on behind the scenes, because I think we would all be naive to think there was nothing going on behind the scenes, right? Xavi takes over. There's all this talk about, oh, Xavi says he's not good enough. And then, you know, a month later, four, five, six weeks later, it's like, Oh, actually, I'm really happy with Serginho Dest. He's a great player. He's improved. And and maybe he had improved a ton over that month. I don't really see that. He looks like mostly the same player that he's been, which is a very, very good soccer player in a lot of different ways. So I'm pleased that the January window is now pretty well behind us and we can just focus on Dest at Barcelona because it really does seem like that's where he's going to be at least for the rest of this season. Now there's some talk about Maserati coming over from Ajax and, and what that might mean, but we don't necessarily need to get into that right now. I think a lot of that Xavi stuff was was overblown for the purposes of trying to make a potential move in the transfer market, and when that doesn't happen, then the narrative starts to change. But Dest, in terms of what I've been seeing recently, again, it's a lot of what we expect. He's a very technical YouTube level skiller, right? That's that's a big part of his game. Is I don't I think if he wasn't a pro player, he would be a YouTuber going around and making people in those weird viral videos. I think that would be his brand. He's technically adept in so many different ways, and that technical ability helps him in so many different ways. It makes him press resistant, which is a really big asset for the national team and certainly for Barcelona, probably more so even for Barcelona at times. He's able to break forward uh, on the dribble, really skillful in that way, always looking to drive the ball forward. Combination play, he's really sharp on on the wing for Barcelona. He can combine with Adama Traore there or with the national team. He can combine with Tim Way or whoever's on that right side, Weston McKennie, 
not right now, ouch, sorry, uh, or Yunus Musa, whoever's on that side with him, 1v1 dribbling, he's dangerous in those situations, and, and his technical ability and skill makes him comfortable in a wide variety of spaces, dating back to young Ajax, which is where he kind of came through before actually breaking into the Ajax first team there in the Netherlands, he played on the right, he played on the left, he played right back, left back, right wing, left. I mean, he, he can do so many different things, and the, the one other thing, and I'm curious to get both of your perspectives on this. After watching the tape and thinking back to a lot of what I've seen from Dest before, I really do think he can be, it has been at times, a really effective 1v1 defender. I know that's not what I led in with the technical ability, but I think watching back his recent footage for Barca, he's been engaged and effective in almost every situation when he has an opposing attacker driving towards him. This was true against Napoli in the Europa League. It was true against Valencia in the league, against Bilbao in the league. He's been on it defensively. Maybe that's part of what Xavi's talking about if if we're trying to be less cynical about that whole narrative thing. But I think Des has a lot of the tools to be a very good defender. The question is, can he eliminate a few of those mental lapses that I think has hurt him in the past? But at least based on what I'm seeing right now, and even what I've seen recently with the national team against Canada and in that last window, I think Des defensively has done a pretty good job, and I'm curious to see if you guys agree with that. Uh, Graham, a lot, a lot to break down there from Joe. And Joe, thank you for that, because I think... You really covered a lot of ground in talking about everything that Serginho Death brings, both for club and country. I want to go back to the idea that maybe some of the Xavi stuff was overblown. Graham, where are you in that line of thinking? Because I think there are some similarities to his game. I do wonder if he maybe just needed a little bit of a kick to get him going. Uh, what do you make of that sort of narrative of Xavi not wanting Dest and then suddenly wanting Dest? And now, as I said, they're best friends. I think I think the important context of that is how Barcelona in the January window fixed that right side by getting Adama Traore, they bring in Ferran Torres as well as a different option and then all of a sudden Usman Dembele is playing well and he's fit. So until that January window it felt like Dest was being asked to do a lot. He was being asked to to be the the defensive right back but also the the outlet up the right side Barcelona were so kind of muddled in their thinking on Dest that for uh, about a month or two Dest was playing as a as a right winger as the right sided forward in that in that front three and I think that just illustrated how they were short of options Dest was pretty much their only natural right sided player in that in that whole squad obviously Dembele was still in the books but he was injured for the first half of the season so I think getting in someone who is taking off some of the the burden on Des, whether that is Adama Traore or Ferran Torres or Dembele, who's now fit again, has just kind of uh, eased some of the some of the pressure on Des. And as I say, he's not expected to do so much on his own. So I I do think it was slightly overblown. I think Joe's probably r- right to suggest that maybe there was some an element of transfer speculation in there. He was obviously linked with with Chelsea, um, who were interestingly enough looking at him as as a left back. He has played recently as a left back for Barcelona as well and, and done and done pretty well in that position. So Chelsea were looking at him. Bayern Munich have this long standing interest in him. So I do wonder with Barcelona, everyone is up for sale at the moment um because of their financial situation. I do wonder if that was an element of it. I've always been a big fan of of Dest. I think he's got a lot of uh, good physical attributes to be a, a, a you know a quintessential modern fullback. I think Joe pretty much covered covered everything that 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 he offers. I would slightly push back on on the notion that he is ex- like ex- exceptionally press resistant. I do think he is. He's not the worst, but I do think you can unsettle him. And I look back to the to the classical last year where Real Madrid basically put I think it was Asensio 
um, and Ferland Mendy on desk to try and unsettle him. And he, and he does cough up the ball from time to time. I know, Joe, you mentioned kind of errors he makes. I, I guess that would be the category they fall into. So I do think on the ball he can be slightly um, vulnerable. But mm-hmm. other than that, I, I think his, his pace is a great attribute that helps him out on both sides. I don't think he's quite Kyle Walker, but on, in yeah. ball recoveries, he's he's pretty adept in, in getting back. And if you're a team that's playing in quick transition, then that is very useful as well. I, as I say, I'm repeating myself a little bit. I've always been a fan of Des, and I think he's one of the, the USA's best at this moment, to be honest. And let me add one more thing there. Graham, you mentioned his pace, and I agree he is pretty fast. But to your point, he is not Kyle Walker fast. I think back to that Canada game that the U.S. loses in Hamilton. Dest really struggled to beat Tejon Buchanan in that game. Taylor, I don't know if you remember that or not, but there's moments where Dest and Buchanan are getting into it a little bit because Dest is frustrated that he can't find his way past Tejon. So I think he has that speed, and I mentioned he can be effective in 1v1 dribbling situations when, when Dest is in possession. I, I do think that is one area of his game that's really not going to improve at this point. I don't think he's going to get significantly faster. But I think that that part of his game hinders his ability to be a truly elite 1v1 creative force because he doesn't have that Tejan or Adama-level breakaway speed, which is sort of unreal, unreasonable to to ask him to have because that's only something that a few select players have in their lockers. But that's one thing I wanted to mention on Des that does sort of hinder his ability to truly take over games. I, I also think in terms of, again, this is an area he's not actually bad at, but we're actually talking about Dest as, a, as, a, as an elite level performer. He's playing for Barcelona, so that's the that's the bar. I think uh, his crossing could probably do with some refinement as well. So he's, he's in the 15th percentile for crosses into the penalty area. Granted, that is just the number of crosses he's attempting, but I'd suggest he's not attempting many because... There's not uh, a lot of the time. It feels like he's just aimlessly putting a, a cross into the box. Into the box, cutbacks. Yes, he's he's good at those. But crosses. I think if you look at someone like, if I think of the best crossing fullbacks, I'm thinking of people like Alexander Arnold. Now, granted, he he is on a completely different level to maybe any other fullback we've ever seen. But even someone like Kieran Trippier, who I think is very good at that, he's he's light years ahead of uh, Sergino Dest in that in that respect. So maybe that is another area where he could uh, do with some refinement. See, I think that's just your noted England bias, Graham, and how much you love uh, <laughs> I know. Players. I picked out two. See, if it had been a left back, I would have uh, picked two Scots. Yeah, but I, I have no doubt. <laughs> also, England does the land of right backs. <laughs> uh, as long as we're talking about ways that Dest has improved, Joe, since you're already looking for uh, ways to get Robert Lewandowski's paperwork through, can you also check out Adama Traore and Ferran Torres? Do you mind? Yeah, no, I'm on it. I mean, it won't be that much extra work. I'm already filing some paperwork, as you said. Perfect, perfect. I appreciate it. Well, while you're working on that, um, the thing that I felt like I saw that was different to me, and maybe this is just wishful thinking, but uh, in their most recent games, one, uh, I think he was a substitute appearance, one was a start. It did seem like his defensive positioning and awareness were better than I had seen previously. And I wonder if part of that is that he doesn't have that sort of breakaway speed and that significant recovery speed. Obviously, he can get back. Obviously, he's quick enough. But there, there were times when I would see him like, like make that overlapping run in case somebody wanted to play him in wide or he would make the overlapping run and then move a little bit central in case there was going to be that sort of interior through ball. But when that wouldn't happen, I noticed him immediately if not sprinting, then like 75% speed, getting back maybe 15, 20 yards, and then resetting his positioning. And to me, that felt like he's getting back into position to both help attacks if they kind of uh, go with more possession around the top of the box, but also he's there if you do need him to do the defensive job. And it seemed like maybe spending some time on the bench and 
being told publicly or discussed publicly as not being quite good enough or at the level that was needed, maybe that just focused him a little bit more. So it did seem like that defensive side of things was better. And I thought his attacking, if not output, then at least involvement seemed more focused. Previously, I think we've talked about how like you can see what Jordi Alba is doing on the left and how involved he is consistently and how important he is in the way Barcelona wants to attack. And it feels to me like Serginho Dest is getting more involved, is just having more comfort in the way they attack. That even if he's not creating chances, I, I just see him keeping the ball and finding open passes and keeping possession and making smarter choices than forcing something through. Yeah. I put that to either of you because I'm not sure if that's just my bias because I want to see Serginho Dest succeed. No, I think that's right. Okay, Graham, Graham agrees. Think, Graham, yeah, tell think, me why I'm right. Yeah, I think that's right, Taylor. And I think that that is um, that goes back to what I was talking about of just just less responsibility has almost focused him. Um mm-hmm. And that you're talking about when he's receiving the ball now, he's maybe more involved in the build-up play. Whereas before, when he was the only attacking option on that right side of the Barcelona team, he's thinking, right, I've got to get to the byline, I've got to get across in, and things can get a little bit rushed, and he can get a little bit clouded in his thinking and his decision pro- uh, decision making process. Whereas now, it doesn't feel like that is all on his shoulders, and he's got someone ahead of him who can help him out in that regard. And yes, he overlaps from time to time, but not every time. You know, he's got Adama Traore to do that for him, or he's got Dembele. So yeah, I I totally agree with that. Graham, you said something earlier. Did you say that we're talking about him being like a borderline elite player? What was your phrasing? Um, yes, yeah, so we are talking about him in in the context of being an elite level mm-hmm. performer. He's he's Barcelona's first choice right back, so it kind of comes with the territory for sure i i think it's i ask because it's an interesting way to also think about u.s players in my mind that when we're talking about what do they do well versus what do they not do well when i look at dest if i'm summarizing a lot of what we're saying could be said about a lot of other players in the pool who are at lower levels and so i think it's worth sort of adding that like almost that tier of like if he's like a tier one player for the u.s when we're saying uh, maybe he's not quite as press resistant as we would like him to be, or maybe there are some mental lapses and key moments. Maybe his crossing could do with re- refinement, but I think we're still talking about him being able to do those things at a significantly higher level than other players that are in the pool who need to work on the same thing. So I think for me, that's just a good thing to remember because sometimes I will just think of it as like, yeah, yeah, he's not press re- or not as like press resistant as we want. Maybe he needs to be better in crossing, and then I'll lump him in with other players who are in that category. Whereas I do think he is one of our most important players, especially when he is uh, on his game and feeling confident. And I'm hopeful to optimistic that that's the Serginho Dest we will see uh, for the United States in these World Cup qualifiers. Joe, in terms of, terms of ideal position, we know he can play either uh, fullback spot. He He's done both for Barcelona recently. I guess he can be more attacking as well, but I'm inclined to say I'm most comfortable seeing him as a right back for the U.S. Me too. We've seen him some on the left, at left back, I should be clear, for the national team before. I think there's aspects of that that I really enjoy, but I think for almost every game, it makes the most sense to put him at right back. And we have one more question about Serginho Dest uh, from at Oakland Guy on Twitter. I'm guessing he's from Oakland. Uh, how does Dest play alongside a ball-dominant winger? For example, why not play Dest and Pulisic on the same side? It seems like they combine really well and provide a possible solution to break down a low block. Joe, why not try this thing that's never been seen before? Yeah, it, it has. I, I, I get your <laughs> subtext there, Taylor. This has been done before. And it, it's happened especially when Dest is playing left back and Pulisic is playing 
on the left wing. This, we've seen that before multiple times under Greg Berhalter. And there's aspects of that, like I just mentioned, there's, there's parts of that that I enjoy. I want to almost shift this over, though, theoretically, to the right side. If, if Pulisic is moving over to the right to match up with Dest, I like that idea a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that Christian Pulisic is infinitely better on the right than he is on the left, especially after he's been performing pretty well for Chelsea, playing, to my mind, at least mostly on the left side of their front three. But I'm I'm okay with that idea. I think they play pretty well together. Just just Dest plays well, I think, with players who want to combine to Oakland guys' question, who who want to interact and, and quick one two touch that then allows Dest to drive forward on the ball and create something, or then creates opportunities for the winger on his side to do something similar. I think Tim Weah, certainly not a ball dominant winger, but fills that role pretty well on that side too. Gio Reyna could do that job. But to be yeah. totally honest, I'm not especially bothered who the winger is on that right side as as long as it's someone that I, I think is a good player and the best fit for that particular game. That That's what I was going to say, Joe, was I, I agree in the theory that a ball-dominant winger ahead of Des could work well, but I'm not entirely convinced that Pulisic is, is that player. Maybe Reyna yeah. is the, the better fit for that. I could see Des and Reyna on that right side working really well, and then obviously you can just have Pulisic on the left, which is maybe his best position. So... Basically, what we're saying is, Gio Reyna, please get fit again <laughs> so you can play some minutes for, for the U.S. Uh, agree on that for sure. Uh, one player discussed, four more still to be uh, analyzed. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Welcome back, listeners. We're going to be talking about Mr. Timothy Weah up next, a very popular player who gets a lot of questions asked about him. Most of those questions are pretty much the same question. We'll get to those in a moment. Because first, Graham, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on Tim Weah. What is he good at? What is he bad at? Or maybe what is he not good at? <laughs> yeah, so so uh, Timothy Weah is a player that has almost at least in my eyes, has almost flown under the radar slightly as a as a, a key player for the US. You know, when you think of attacking threats, you do think of Pulisic, Reyna, you know, McKenney, and, and Way has always been there, and he obviously breaks through at PSG and is now a, an important player for, for Lille, but he's maybe not been at that level, at least in my eyes. But as a, as a tactical pawn, I think he's really important for the US. I think Balance is hugely important to any attack, and I think Weah provides this by stretching the the pitch a lot of the time. We should probably mention that he's he's most effective on the on the right side of a front three. He can play in the left. He has uh, played through the middle at earlier stages of his uh, stages of his career, coming through at PSG and uh, at Celtic as well. But for Lille and for the USMNT recently, he's settled into a role on on the right side. And as I say, I think balance is one of the things he brings to that US attack. He stretches the pitch a lot of the time. He likes to position himself. Very very wide, sometimes even on the on the touchline, um, during periods of possession to make his uh, his team's a- attacking shape wider. The purpose of this is one to stretch the opposition's defensive shape, and the idea there is that that creates more space for his central teammates to play through, um, and then two to pull the opposition left back out wide and and to isolate that player one we one v one. That was very difficult for me to say. Hmm. A situation in which. Uh, Wea is, is, is pretty comfortable in. That brings me to one of his best qualities, which I think is the ability in the one we one v one. <laughs> Almost impossible for me to you say got that. It, Graham. One v one situation. He is in the seventy third percentile for successful dribbles that lead to a goal. He's averaging three point nine seven dribbles per ninety in league one this season, which makes him one of the the most prolific dribblers in that division. Um, and just generally, when I think of Wea, I, I think of someone who can thrive in that 1v1 situation and someone who creates space through his positioning on, on the pitch. In terms of what he is bad at or what he could be better at, and which I think is more apt because I don't think he's bad at it. When I when I watch Wea, I see a player with um, a huge amount of potential for attacking the half space and he doesn't necessarily do that all the time. I think there are opportunities where he has that 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 chance and he maybe goes wide or he cuts back when um and I do understand that a lot of the time he has a duty to perform in the team. He needs to stay wide to maintain the shape and make sure things don't get too congested. But sometimes the space he creates is there for himself to exploit and I'd like him to do that a little bit more. But other than that, um yeah, very useful player for the US and 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 uh, broadly speaking. Graham, for listeners who are confused by that phrasing, and definitely not for me who totally gets it, what do you mean when you say uh, he has the potential to attack the half space but doesn't necessarily take that opportunity? Yeah, so when he is uh, stretching the opposition defense and he's going wide, the the spaces are there between the the left back and the central defenders of the opposition. That kind of space is what I would would mm-hmm. would class as the half space. You know, it's it's or you could often it's often called like a channel as well. And sure, uh, his teammates can make the most of that space, but there are times when he is on the ball or when he's more more appropriate actually is when he's playing a one two. So he'll play a pass inside and. The opportunity is there for him to receive the second pass on the triangle and burst into that space and get in behind, into the box and maybe get a shot away or 
cross it across the face of goal. He doesn't always take that opportunity and he will maintain the width. And as I say, maybe that's his tactical instruction. Maybe that is his, his, his sole role in the team is to provide that width. But I would like to, take, to see him take a few more risks. And I think the opportunity is there for him to do that. Lovely. Uh, Joe, anything to add on either what he's good at or what he needs to be better at? I agree with so much of what Graham said there, especially the opening thoughts about how dangerous he is breaking into vertical space, right? Driving the ball forward and really pushing and making space in behind the opposition back line. I think that's really the most valuable thing that he provides to this U.S. team, especially when we think about players like Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna who like to come deep. So Wea likes to go in beyond, and, and he'll, he'll still come deep at times, sure, but he'll do a much better job on a regular basis of stretching the line and creating space in behind. All you have to do to see that is go back and watch even just five minutes of the U.S. men's national team's win over El Salvador from January. Christian Pulisic was on the left, Wea was on the right. Pulisic did almost no line stretching, and Tim Wea did a lot of it in that game, and that was a pretty effective attacking pattern for the U.S. in that game. So I, I love that part of his game, especially given the other wingers that the U.S. has in the pool he loves to combine as well. I kind of mentioned this in the desk section, but I really enjoy when Weya and Dest in particular, or Weya and McKenney. Man, I think back to that El Salvador game as well. Maybe that was Honduras, excuse me, when they had that little bit of combination Weya and McKenney did. And, and it should have ended, and this is one thing that I think Weya could improve, with a little ball over to Ricardo Pepe for a tap-in, or even Jordan Morris behind Ricardo Pepe for a tap-in. But, uh, but Weya decided to shoot anyway, which was not the right decision in that case. I do think decision-making in some of those moments is something that Weya could improve. But generally, man, finding ways to stay healthy, number one, and I know that's easier said than done, that's something I would love to see from Tim Way. I have no clue if that's possible or not, but he's missed a lot of games over the last two or three seasons with various injuries. I want to see that. I want to see some sharper decision-making in the final third and in the box in particular. I also just want to see him score more goals, especially for Leal. His attacking numbers on a per-90-minute basis aren't particularly pretty, um, which is somewhat understandable given all those injuries I just mentioned and Lille's tactical approach and, and their general style. Uh, but I want to see him be more productive with Lille because he's certainly shown an ability to to be productive and actually create goals and create attacking chances and, and score and, and be on the end of some of those chances with the national team. Uh, we have a couple of listener questions. I have a question of my own. Uh, but the first one is for Graham. If we're talking about Sergio Dest as being like a tier one player, like he is one of the more talented, mm -hmm. known players who maybe is like, if you're picking a squad, he's probably in like the top five players you're picking. Where is Tim Weah in your mind? Um, tier two, yeah, I think. Uh, tier tier one is is a very. I I only have maybe about five players in that tier one for the US anyway. So Dest, Pulisic, Adams, McKenny, is that it? I think, and then Weah's probably below that level where. I wouldn't class him as an elite level mm -hmm. performer, but he's still playing at a very high level for Lille and Ligue 1 and is very useful for the US and is a first team player. So yeah, yeah, that's where I'd have him. And that's about where he is for me. And I think that everything you all are saying combined with that, I think is very representative of my confusion about Tim Weah, especially my confusion about Tim Weah at Lille. Uh, we had two different questions about that, one from Jasper Redekin, one from Randy Morgan. Weah seems to be more productive in goals and assists for the USMNT than he is for Lille. What could be some reasons for that? Uh, from Randy, why do you think Weah has seen limited minutes at Lille recently, seem to be in good form, then all of a sudden he's riding the bench? 
Um, so I think, first of all, we've talked about it many times, I think, previously, but Lille, a different entity than they were last season. They had to sell some players. It's it's not the same kind of structural integrity. And so they, they are not quite this, like, free-flowing, super fun attacking team that wins Ligue 1. I think that they've had to kind of figure out new ways of approach, and I don't think that always means they're playing as a cohesive unit. I think sometimes I'm seeing players take people on 1v1s when they have supporting options around them, or they're trying shots when they could be going for a quick combination. And there's just a little bit of like lack of consistency in the way this squad plays, but I think Wea himself doesn't help that. And this goes into the questions we always get about why can't he be a number nine? Why doesn't Berhalter use him as a number nine? And I think it, it relates to Lille, it relates to the U.S. I think there's a lack of physicality to Wea's game that I think is part of why maybe we don't see him attack those half spaces. We don't see him maybe ride those 1v1 challenges as much. Um, and I'm going to go long here by saying when we talk about the Burhalter question about why he's not played as a number nine, I think it's important to look at what Burhalter wants from his number nine. Uh, Joe, I, talk, I texted a little bit with Doyle about that. I'm not trying to name drop. I just want to make sure I give him the credit for, I think... Codifying in my mind that there's basically two types of number nine that Burhalter wants. It seems like he wants uh, a forward who that number nine who can drop in and facilitate play and kind of be a false nine. And then there's the Giassi Zardes version who's going to maybe be a bit more vertical, who's going to occupy the center backs, who's going to try to create space in behind for, or behind him in the middle of the pitch for other players to occupy. Is that a fair summary of what Burhalter wants from his number nine in your mind? I think it's a fair summary, and it okay. depends slightly on who that player is mm-hmm. in the specific game. But to to avoid all of those caveats, yes. <laughs> so I, I think in in my mind, then basically, Wea isn't playing as that false nine for Lille, and it's a very complicated position. We know Berhalter's system is is fairly complex, and so I think he doesn't want to overcomplicate it. He doesn't want to try things that then require a ton of instruction to get Timothy Wea understanding what the responsibilities are for that false nine for that dropping in number nine, whatever you want to call it. So I think he's more comfortable leaving him out wide. But I also think where in terms of the kind of 1v1 hand, handling challenges, battling for 50-50s, that doesn't seem to be his strongest skill set either. And in the footage I was watching of him, especially against Mets, I saw him getting just knocked off the ball. Even when he comes on as a substitute versus Leon, it's the same thing. He gets knocked off the ball twice. Both times he looks for a foul. Neither time it's given because it's kind of a a shoulder-to-shoulder challenge. And I think if you want to be that number nine who's occupying center backs, who's driving at the defense, you got to be able to to ride that challenge a little bit. You've got to be able to create individually in those moments. And I think that's what keeps him from being a center forward for the U.S. is the lack of familiarity with the false nine spot and the lack of physicality with just being an out-and-out number nine. Um, and I think that's probably what hurts him with Lille a little bit, is that he doesn't have that end product that's maybe what other players who have been sold on were bringing to that team. And I think he is more than capable of of developing that, but that's where, to bring it all back, I think the Tier 2 classification is correct, because he's very good, very talented, but doesn't have that sort of next-level ability of some of the players that Graham mentioned. So that is my answer to that question and the Burhalter number 9 question. I've talked for a while. I leave it to you two to add anything else you want to add about Tim Weah or anything I've said there. I think if you're playing Weah as a, as a number 9, the knock-on effect it could also have on the, the sort of wide players you have to play to get the best out of Weah as a 9 yeah. means you basically change the whole character of that attack. So basically, I think of Wea, this is a this is a very dated reference, but when I think of Wea as a number nine, I think of uh, Michael Owen, kind of playing on the last the shoulder yeah. of the last defender, trying to get in behind, and I'm not sure oh Pulisic God. I hate and... that Michael Owen is a dated reference. That does not make <laughs> yeah. me happy. 
Uh, it is though. <laughs> it is though. That was about twenty years ago yeah. that Michael Owen was that player. Yeah. Um. Anyway, you'd probably want to have. I don't know who would you want to have behind Wea McKenney getting up there and kind of playing passes through, or I'm not even sure. Gio Reyna, I guess, would be very useful for doing that. But you're you're not going to have Pulisic. You're not going to have someone stretching the pitch on the right side like Wea to play alongside Wea, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I don't think it makes sense for Wea to be a number nine in Berhalter's system. I think I'm the resident Wea number nine apologist on this particular show because oh, I, oh. I think you guys make a lot of good points. I've just been so interested in seeing him do that job for such a long yeah. time. It's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen between now and Qatar. I don't think there's any chance of that. But I I actually think he would do a pretty darn good job of that. And really the reason we don't see him there is more so because of the value he brings on the wing, not because he couldn't do the job as a nine. I think until you mentioned him getting bodied off the ball against Mets, I'd have to go back and watch those sequences, but my guess would be it's an entirely different situational context than what it would be if he's dropping in braced to absorb contact as a nine, knowing a center back is about to crash into him. I think the situation there is much different than receiving the ball wider and trying to drive the ball forward and being knocked off balance while you're running. I think it's a different skill set. I think Wea does have some strength. He's not Daryl DK out here, Jordan Pifok, but I think he could do that job. That said... I think he's a really, really good player out wide. I think he's going to prove himself at club level and really start to put together a successful season as soon as he can stay healthy for the vast majority of a season. Right now, when he's been dealing with injuries and when he's been trying to get established in that team, he's not going to beat out Renato Sanchez for a wide spot because Sanchez is so incredibly important to that Leo squad. We talked about that during Champions League, and we're going to talk about that again coming up in this this next leg of the round of 16 games. Jonathan David, way is not going to start over him up top. He's probably not going to start over uh, Hatem Ben Arfa either, who Leo got in the January window. He's not really going to start over Barack Yumaz. They're different players. So maybe you're looking at him fighting with Jonathan Bamba for a spot on the wing. It's it's tricky to find minutes. Lille's not having their best season, but they have a lot of talent. I just think Wea needs to stay healthy to really emerge at club level. But for now, he's scoring and causing real problems for the national team, although he wasn't great against Honduras. But that aside, he's he's creating chances and getting on the end of chances, and I don't think you can ask for a whole lot more than that. Joe, you're not so much a Tim Wea apologist, but a Tim Wea mad scientist who just wants <laughs> yes. to see the experiment and what happens. Look, I want to see that experiment as well. I'm just not sure it goes well. Joe, <laughs> I think something blows up. I will verify this. <laughs> Tim Wea is going to blow something up. I like it. Um, I will verify this via text message if need be. But I appreciate you saying what you said because I have in my notes, Wea as a number nine could be an interesting experiment, but not in World Cup qualification. And I think that is probably something where yeah, as we get I agree. More- if they do qualify, when they qualify, uh, we will have those friendlies, the the kind of tune in, tune up friendlies, and maybe that's an opportunity for us to see what he can do there. But I think um, I failed to connect this to my earlier idea that like I think that's where Burhalter maybe doesn't want too many variables right now because if you're trying way as a nine, then who's going to play out wide? Oh, it could be this guy, but then I'd have to move this guy. And I think the more people he has to shuffle around and the more things he's trying to figure out, the less he is drilling in the core concepts that he wants the team to embrace. So I think there is an ample opportunity for experimentation down the road, just maybe not uh, prior to qualifying for the World Cup, and certainly not at the World Cup. Uh, and then uh, the final thing for Tim Weah for me, which is actually for Matt Doyle, would be when I, he asked why I was asking these questions about Tim Weah. I said, because I'm trying to answer the question of why he can't play as a number nine. And he said, uh, because he's been our best player as a winger seems like a yeah. good answer. And that is probably yeah. the ultimate answer. So if we're talking about best position, we're we comfortable with saying right wing slash right side of a front three? Yeah, I'm even I'm even fine with him on the left. I know Graham said he's best on the right. I don't really care one way or the other. 
Joe, do you have some preferences to where you see Jesus Ferreira play? Because he's the next player we're going to talk about. Center back, baby. Center back. <laughs> Risky. Joe is really the mad scientist today. I like it. Joe's going to throw it all, all the chaos into things. Uh, Joe, talk to us a bit about Jesus Ferreira, a player that I know you have watched uh, many times, and I'm guessing you've watched uh, a considerable amount recently. Yes, I have. He's he's a linking machine as a number nine, and we should note he's playing the number nine. Huzzah! Yay! The crowd goes wild. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of Ferreira as a nine, a lone nine for FC Dallas Ever. And he's finally under Nico Estevez, former U.S. Men's National Team assistant coach. He's finally getting looks there. He started both of Dallas's first two games as a nine in a 4-3-3 that if you squint, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was the U.S. Men's National Team, especially with that all-American central midfield and, and two-thirds of an American front line. There's a lot of Americans on that team, as there seemingly always are. Jesus Ferreira is a linking machine as a number nine. He is a unique presence in this pool And that brings a lot of value. Um, He's a pretty polarizing presence as well, at least on Twitter. And I I got to experience some of that posting a clip that I thought was pretty darn good of Jesus Ferreira. Maybe we'll talk more about that within the context of a question or two that we got. But he'll drop in, he'll connect, he'll combine. And he's really good at that stuff. He's good at playmaking in those spaces. Like I said, there's no one else in this pool at the nine who's like him. Tim Weah, not a nine, but not really like him. Josh Sargent, no. Uh, Jesse Zardes, no. I mean, there's, there's no one that plays exactly like he does. Through two games for Dallas, Jesus Ferreira has had the most passes that have led to a shot within five seconds of the ball leaving his foot. So Ferreira passes, and within the next five seconds, there's a shot. He's had more of those passes than any other player in MLS through two games. Not just any other striker, any other player. That includes tens, that includes creative eights, that includes wingers. Jesus Ferreira is doing more of that kind of playmaking than anyone else. And then after the ball leaves his foot... He's active in the box. He had the third most runs inside the 18 of any player in MLS. And he'll press. He'll do a lot of that stuff. I really enjoy watching Jesus Ferreira. He brings a lot of value to the U.S. men's national team. He brings a ton of value to Dallas. There are downsides, and there are things that you have to change and accommodate when you have him in the lineup. And and maybe we can talk about those things in a bit, but I feel like I've been talking for a while now. So generally speaking, really valuable and unique player in this pool. Uh, And and I, I guess I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, Graham, any anything to add to what he's good at, what he's bad at? Not really. I think um, Ferreira is a very useful player to have in in the pool, and I, absolutely, I think his his unique skill set ranks him higher in the, the the depth chart than would ordinarily be the case for someone of his of his standing and stature. Obviously, he's still young and finding his way in the game, and. You know, I don't want to be disrespectful to MLS. He's not playing in one of the big five European leagues, but as I say, I think his his uh, skill set is is so useful that he, that is why he's he's in the in the roster. I, I, people sometimes make out that Ferreira is a is a bit of a goalless centre forward, um, that he's purely there to to drop deep and to create that space that Joe was mentioning about there and link up with with other attack, attackers. I, th- I think it's important to note here that that's not entirely true. Um, Ferreira averages 0.3 goals per 90 minutes. Um, that's among, um, sorry, he is in the the, 16, the 69th percentile among MLS forwards over the last year. Um, so that's that's pretty decent. And he's also averaging 0.3 assists per 90. Again, um, ranking him pretty high among his, his peers, 83rd percentile on that one. So... He he he's not entirely a goalless centre forward. He does carry a threat. Is it true that he could do with sharpening up his finishing? Yes, I think that was probably the, um, true of the the clip that that you posted, Joe, which is maybe what you got some of the the pushback on. Is is that he creates the space, he links up, but then the shot in the end is a little bit wayward. Um, 
But then I guess the idea is if you're creating those opportunities, that is better than not creating those opportunities. Um, so if he can if he can prove in that regard, he's going to be some player. Can I can I do a thing, Taylor? Can I do a thing here real quick? I mean, you're the mad scientist. Do what you want, my friend. Okay. <laughs> have have people never played soccer before? Right? Uh-oh. Do people do people think it's <laughs> easy to score goals? It, it's not, right? I mean, I, I posted this clip, and I know it's probably just a few people Joe, that are, I just that are going to off say about that, this. Yes, people think it's easy. Yes, they absolutely. Okay, it's do. not. Let me let me <laughs> let me solve that question real quick. It's not easy, right? If it was easy, we would all be professional players scoring a thousand goals in a season. Jesus Ferreira would have a thousand goals. Jazzy Zardes would have a thousand goals. That's not how this works, right? There's a reason why when someone gets to 20 goals, we applaud them because that's an extremely impressive season. There's a reason the MLS's golden boot winner last year didn't even hit 20 goals. It's hard to do this stuff. The, the valuable thing that we've learned, and we can intuit if we use our brains, and we've learned through statistical analysis by people that are way smarter than me, we've learned that finishing, at least in a, any sort of medium sort of sample size, is not something we can really quantify. The prevailing theory among statisticians, the really, really smart people out there, is that finishing is not necessarily a real skill that's differentiable from one professional soccer player to the next. At the international level, at some sort of higher level league, it's it's not really something we can prove. What we can prove that does have a statistical correlation to scoring goals is that getting in good spots where you receive the ball to then shoot on goal or just shoot at all, it doesn't matter what happens after the ball leaves your foot, We've learned that that correlates to scoring goals. Jesus Ferreira does that kind of stuff. And Daryl DK, to, to use his name here, he scored a bunch of goals on loan for Barnsley. He way outperformed his expected goals, meaning that his production wasn't sustainable. Ricardo Pepe doing something similar. And, and we blink and we sort of let those players fade to the background. And I know that DK's hurt right now. I know that Pepe's not playing a ton with Augsburg. But then they, they stop scoring. And we don't think about what that means and how that illustrates the statistical concept along the way. It's hard to score goals, and Ferreira getting in good spots on a regular basis, or any player getting in good spots on a regular basis, indicates that goals will likely come sooner rather than later. So that's my my bid on Ferreira. Scoring goals is hard, shooting is, is hard, and it's not really that much of a difference between one player to the next in terms of how they convert can, those chances. Can I can I provide my concern about Ferreira in the US team as the number nine? I feel like we've We've given him a lot of praise, and rightfully so, and I do think he's very useful in certain scenarios. But my my issue with Ferreira as the starting number nine for the US isn't really anything to do with his skill set in particular. It's not a weakness. It's more to do with the dynamic of the matches the US face in CONCACAF. So for Ferreira to be most effective, you need, generally speaking, to be in transition or have the opportunity to be in transition and that's where you can get your attack spun and exploiting the space he has created uh, by dropping deep as has his trademark move as we've established however the majority of the games the US play in CONCACAF qualifying are against low defensive blocks and they don't often get the chance to play in transition at least as often as they would like so then in that case the question becomes well what what is and I'm talking very generally here and being very blunt, but what what is the purpose of Ferreira in that team? And in a strange sort of way, I wonder if once you get to the World Cup yep. and you have those higher higher caliber opponents, and maybe even in the next international window that the US is going to have against um, the higher caliber opponents of Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, maybe that's where you get the best out of Ferreira. Maybe that's where, in a strange sort of way, playing against the higher 
the, the better quality opponents who are going to try and impose their own game on the US is where we're actually going to get more out of Ferreira in those matches. Uh, Graham, I'm very excited. I, I didn't want to just like be nodding along in the background, but just to emphasize what you said, and then and then Joe, I will turn it over to you. That that is like precisely why I'm slightly more optimistic about this round of qualifying. As I said in the intro, I think the three teams we're going to be playing against, like Panama. Uh, away historically are going to be sitting deep and just trying to like hold on and frustrate but if they need a result if they need to get a point or three points or whatever it might be I do wonder if they're going to be more open Mexico at the Azteca you would assume they will be more open Costa Rica at home needing a result you would assume that there will be those opportunities for the U.S. to hit in transition and that's where I think we might see I'm inclined to say we might see the best performance from Jesus Ferreira if he starts, if he plays, that we've seen for him playing for the United States. More on how little he's played for the United States in a moment. Uh, but, I, but I do think that we are poised to see him playing in his like most natural position for the U.S. against opponents who might help facilitate him looking good in that role, uh, even if they are particularly good. But yeah, Graham, I think that's a pretty wise observation. Joe, I believe I interrupted you, so uh, I will stop talking now so you can start talking. I man, I guess I'm just contrarian on today's show. I, okay. I'm I'm trying to trying to fully understand Graham your point and, and I guess Taylor your point as well. To me, it seems like with Jesus Ferreira's skill set, the the area where he brings you almost the most value is against a lower block or a lower type of of team in terms of how they defend. Right? I mean, his ability to come deeper and combine to then pull center backs out for then you to have space to exploit. It seems to me that like that's most valuable against a low block against teams that don't want to budge, right? And if you can make them budge just a little bit, you open up this really big window of opportunity. And, and earlier to look at the transition side of things, and we don't have to agree on this, fellas. By the way, I'm just I'm just pointing this out as as maybe a, a slightly different viewpoint. The, the the thing I was going to mention in terms of the team having to change how they play a little bit to suit Jesus Ferreira is when he plays, he creates some challenges for the U.S. men's national team meaning that the U.S. tends to lack some sort of central attacking presence in moments, right? So if Jesus Ferreira drops deep, then the question is who's filling that nine spot, right? Who's who's going to attack the six? Who's going to attack the center backs? It seems to me that if you're having him drop really deep in transition to start a counterattack or something like that, those are the moments where it's going to be hardest to fill that nine spot because Jesus Ferreira has so much distance to cover to get back in and really challenge the center backs. The areas where I think, and maybe this is just anecdotal evidence, but where I think I've seen him be the most effective dropping in is, is maybe it's in transition or maybe it's in possession, but it's it's in the attacking half at the very least where then he can turn around, get on his horse and get into the box. That's what happened in that clip I posted. It was a transition-ish kind of moment that comes after he helps Dallas break forward. But I think when he has less ground to cover, he can actually get back and resume his goal-scoring responsibilities. And I think it's those moments where we're going to start to see him on the score sheet a bit. So, I don't know. I guess yeah. I have sort of an alternate perspective on on when and, and why you might want him to attack a de- an opposing defense. But either way, I, I enjoy watching him. I'm okay with him doing a lot of that stuff in pretty much any context. I, I, I get a lot of that, that theory, Joe, but I, I do wonder if the... In reality, the practice the practice of a of a low defensive block is exactly that, and that they're just not going to budge. And then, so okay, maybe you are getting Ferreira free in space, thirty yards from goal, to pick up a pass, and he's not, and he can get turned. But then that that's not really his game, you know. If he's then spraying a pass out wide, and then the ball's coming back into him as. Um, you posted in that clip on Twitter, which was very effective, that low defensive block is just going to be set for him to run into and they're just going to repel that cross fairly easily. So 
I understand what you're saying. If he can get them to budge, then yeah, he 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 um could be useful against a low defensive block. But a good low defensive block isn't going to budge very much. I'm enjoying feeling like a, a, a tennis spectator where I'm just kind of watching it go back and forth. <laughs> Joe, Joe, I don't want to uh, prevent you from responding if you've got anything to no, say. No, otherwise, uh, I want to respond because I think part of the idea that that like stigma on Twitter, the idea that like he doesn't score goals, he doesn't he doesn't uh, do enough uh, like to create clear cut goals for the United States. I think that is related to the idea of a false nine and just the idea that, oh, he's dropping in, so he's not playing near the goal, so he's not scoring, so then somebody else has to. But if our wingers aren't creating, then why are we doing it? Like, I feel like there are, like, links that happen if you want to make those links happen. Joe, I think you honestly are taking a more nuanced look at it and seeing how he is developing his game, and I think that is a huge difference for Jesus Ferreira right now as we're talking about him, is that he is... As you said, Joe, playing in a system that looks like what the U.S. plays, but he is starting in that system. It's not Ricardo Pepe ahead of him anymore, and so he's getting those reps. And I do sort of believe that, yes, there's going to be bunker teams who he won't be able to pull out, and he'll kind of go back to that space and be marked, but then we'll have to kind of evolve from there. But I, I do think he will get sharper as we go, and maybe he, he puts that shot that he missed on frame next time, and the time after that, maybe he puts it in the back of the net. But I think we will see the reps really help him out, and that's where I would note, I think because the U.S. plays a bunch of different games against a bunch of different opponents, and then there's MLS, and there's weird schedules, and there's weird camps, it is easy to think that Jesus Ferreira has played a lot for the United States, and he's got a number of caps. But in terms of starts, he has four. Uh, One is a 1-0 friendly win over Costa Rica in January of 2020, when he was partnered up top by uh, Ulianes and Paul Areola to start. Uh, There's a 7-0 win. What's that? Throwback. Yeah, baby. Uh, then there's a 7-0 win over Trinidad and Tobago in a friendly. He has Jonathan Lewis and Paul Ariola partnering him. The Bosnia friendly in December. He starts at left wing with Ricardo Pepe and Jordan Morris in there. The only time he's played this role is in World Cup qualifying against El Salvador, or he's played in World Cup qualifying, that is, is against El Salvador with Pulisic and Wea partnering him. And no, he doesn't score goals. It's only a 1-0 win. It's still a win. We should note that. But I think people are remembering that and assigning weight to that that maybe it doesn't quite deserve, whereas now we're going to see him doing this job for the United States with more confidence, with more like veteran experience and know-how, and with like a Christian Pulisic around him who seems to be rounding into very good form and is doing things that we've come to expect from Pulisic. So I think I understand where some of that concern about Ferreira comes from, but I also th- understand why... I think there's reason for optimism about him as we talk about him in this upcoming camp. Uh, Graham, if you were going to say where he should play, uh, do you think like his best role is as a false nine and maybe it just doesn't quite get the best out of the team at times? Like, Where would you like to see Ferreira deployed for club or for FC Dallas or for FC Dallas or for the U.S.? Yeah, I I think that number nine position gets the best of him. I am always reluctant to label that that role a false nine because i feel like that meaning gets twisted and uh, a lot of people maybe use that in ways that it isn't meant to be used but i think in terms of uh, a a striker who drops deep creates space links up i mean you think of strikers that do that a striker that does that is harry kane would you ever describe harry kane as a as a false nine I, i certainly wouldn't joe that clip that you posted on twitter that shows what Ferreira can do do you know another player who does precisely that a lot and has done all the way through his career is chicharito you would never describe him 
as a as a false nine. So sorry, I'm not trying to be particularly combative, Joe. Maybe you're bringing <laughs> bringing it out of me today. I like, but, I like uh, a, a feisty show. Yeah, false false nine. Uh, that term I, it just uh, slightly annoys me uh, a little this bit. Is... But yes, absolutely, I'd have him in the in the number nine position, doing his thing, dropping deep, linking up. But Graham, this is the beauty of doing this show. What what should we call that role? What should that position be called then, if not a false nine? What, what, like, because I don't want to call it the Harry Kane role or the Chicharito role, because that is equally confusing. Would you say like the number nine deep lying facilitator? <laughs> like, I don't know what that would be. What would uh, you go with? I don't know. Number nine plus one. I don't know. <laughs> Let's call it that. <laughs> Joe, anything? Any 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 terminology for you that you'd like to employ? I mean, maybe nine point five. I don't. I don't think we need to give it a term, right? I don't. Yeah. I don't. Th- it's just a different. And this is, I think, what Berhalter would say. It's a different interpretation of how the number nine position is played, and it presents different opportunities and different challenges. And that's the nuance that I think is is challenging just to understand at times. But it is that nuance. Soccer can be that nuanced. I'm I'm with Graham Ferreira as a nine makes sense. I'm intrigued about the idea at some point down the road of seeing him as a second forward and a playmaker type underneath a, another striker. But I don't think that makes sense for the national team in the near future, given what Greg Berhalter is trying to build. So yeah, Jesus Ferreira as that nine for the U.S. Whether he starts or not, I don't know. I, one other thing, quickly. Uh, yeah, score more goals, Jesus. I, I, I'm not saying he shouldn't score more. Eight is his career high for any any single season. Get yeah yeah no more goals. I'm against goals. No get. I mean, continuing to see him getting goal scoring positions is huge, and I believe that as long as he does that for club and country, the goals will come. I don't care what you say. I'm calling it the Jesus Kane role, and that's where that's what I'm going to stick with for now. <laughs> uh, we've got two more players to discuss. We've gone long on Jesus Ferreira, but I think a player that justifies it because he is so interesting and could be so important to the U.S. Two more players when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. Up first in our final round of discussions of players is Luca De La Torre, a player that Joe and I have talked about between one and four million times. So, Graham, I'm going to naturally turn it to you to give us the uh, Luca De La Torre. What is he good at? What could he be better at? Summary. Yeah, here we go, right? So, uh, Luca De La Torre is a player that I have in the past found frustrating, um, not because I find him a bad player. In fact, I like his skill set a lot. Um, his ideal role for me is a role where he has the freedom to to drive forward, to carry the ball, create overloads uh, higher up the pitch. What I don't like is when, and I have to say, this is I've seen this primarily in his performance for Heracles when we've analysed some of those games, not so much for the US. And he did have a very good game for the US in, in, in the last international window where we saw the, all these kind of best qualities. But what I don't like is when he plays it safe a little bit too much, and then I I think his skill set is slightly wasted in that role. So when he is um, when I was when I was trying to boil boil down what it is I like about Delatore, I came to the conclusion that I I like when he plays quickly, um, and for a team that wants to have the ball, as is the case with the the USMNT under Berhalter, having someone like Delatore to quicken the tempo up and and stop the play from becoming too predictable, I think that is important. And when he's at his best. Delatore is quick to turn, he's quick to make a pass or drive forward, whether it's for um, himself or a teammate, um, he opens up space um, and as I say, he, he creates overloads. The elephant in the room here when we're talking about Delatore is now Weston McKenney and how I, I suggest that's maybe why we're talking about him now because McKenney is out for the rest of the season. He might have to perform that McKinney role in, in the midfield in the next international window later this month, and, and who knows how long after that, because it seems like quite a serious injury that McKinney's got. Um, this this actually gives me encouragement that we're going to see the best of De La Torre because the US will need him to bring a lot of the qualities that McKinney brought to that team. Um, but I do also have concerns about... I always look for my midfield to have um, kind of protection and midfield balance I think you want protection energy and creativity and control if Adams is bringing the protection and Musa the energy McKenney usually brings the creativity I would suggest is that something Delatore can do or is he also going to bring energy and then you might have a problem with the formula of Musa and Delatore bringing energy in then 
I, I don't know about that balance. Well, I guess we'll see um, in the next international window. I think coverage as well is one of the one of the things that Del Torre offers. He gets around the, the centre of the pitch. He's covered the second most ground in the Dutch league this season. He's also among the the, the most successful dribblers in the Eredivisie this season as well. Um, so there's a lot that I like about him and some things I don't like about him. Another thing that I would suggest he could improve on is his physicality. I, I think as a, a runner in possession, he has plenty of physicality, but he can be bullied in the centre of the pitch on the defensive side of the ball. And at 23 years old, he is still young, but equally not that young as well. I think that's something he could fo- focus on is building that physicality on the defensive side of the ball. Graham, how much of his PSV game did you watch of the Heracles PSV game? Um, I can't recall okay. individual like the if, whether it was against PSV, but I have watched on Y Scout yeah. about four or five games of uh, Delatore to try and... Yeah, so I think you watched it then. His PSV game, I think, was the most recent one that I watched, at least. And that was the one where I saw, honestly, like a return to the Luca Delatore that Joe and I talked about early on, where I felt like he was good against teams that allowed him to sort of have that extra second to make a decision. I agree with you, Graham, that he can play quickly, but I think sometimes... When he's forced to play quickly, he does play safe, as you said, whereas when he's got a little bit more time, that's when you'll see him hit that 30-yard diagonal, that 40-yard diagonal that uh, switches the point of attack or finds a, a teammate in space. But against PSV, I felt like I saw some of that old Luca De La Torre that I, I don't like, that I saw him getting bodied, as you said. He gets knocked off the ball. I started to film it to send to you all, and then my phone died. But there's... In a 30-second span, he gets bodied off the ball, loses possession, then PSV get the ball back, and he gets bodied off the ball again, and that leads to a counterattack. And both times, he kind of, it's, it's definitely not a foul either time, but he kind of protests and lays on the ground, and, and, and I get that. I get in the moment, if you get knocked off, there's an element of, you know, like, I, it must have been a foul. Nobody could knock me over that easily, but, like, I did not love that, and I didn't love how often he seemed uncertain of what to do because of the intensity of how PSV were playing. That was Ibrahim Sangari, wasn't it? That midfield battle yeah, with so. Sangari that he was... Yeah, I, I did watch that game and I also, that's where I had my notes from him lacking physicality was how badly he was losing that individual battle. And so like, what, what do you make of that then in terms of he can be really good playing quickly, playing on the break, carrying the ball forward, but then also at times like can be hassled by that press and can be knocked off the ball like maybe it's just a bad performance maybe it's the sort of erratic nature of playing games every week but I I, I find myself somewhat confused of all the players we're going to talk about I think Luca De La Torre is the one who I'm right. most confused by today and and that is that's kind of my mindset with Del Torre as well is there's a lot that I like about mm-hmm. him but there's equally a lot that I don't like about him and performance to performance it seems like you get something different in every game so as I say the US um, game against I always get these mixed up it was Honduras the match he yep. started wasn't it yep. um, he was good in that game we saw him uh, carrying the ball he was a progressive force in that midfield that's the sort of player we want to see and then as you say in that PSV game Taylor he is physically being found out. Then there's other games for Heracles where he feels like he's playing it safe and he's picking the ball up off the centre-backs, which is not what you want him to do, or he's playing it out to the, the wing-backs when he could take a few steps forward and play it and create an overload and play it to a midfield teammate. So it's it's consistency that I don't see in Del Torre. Not necessarily that he's a bad player with a bad skill set. In fact, I like his skill set. But I feel like Joe is maybe slightly warmer <laughs> on him than the two of us I mean, are. if, if past is precedent for this episode, we're both sort of confused by him which means joe has never been more clear joe i turn it to you (laughs) no i i definitely 
have questions about Luca De La Torre. I think it would be foolish not to in a national team context. His one start in World Cup qualifying, his one start under Greg Berhalter, came against the worst team in CONCACAF in zero-degree weather, whatever on earth it was in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a weird game. And, and Graham, I completely agree. De La Torre was very good in that game, but we haven't seen enough of him with the national team to feel 100% confident that he's going to go into the Azteca and get a start and get the job done, that he's going to come into Orlando against Panama in a must-win game and get that job done. We don't know that yet. I think it would be foolish to say that. And Taylor, you and I were very careful to be measured after that Honduras game with De La Torre because we haven't seen him in red, white, and blue against good teams. We haven't seen it. His only other appearance under Baralter, I believe, came against Jamaica at, at home. I believe that game was in Austin in a 2 nothing win for the U.S. men's national team. De La Torre comes off the bench, and he's good in that game, but that one was pretty much over at that point as well. So we haven't seen enough of him. The, the thing I'll say that hopefully clears some things up for you guys, this is what I believe at least about De La Torre at Heracles, Heracles is not a good team in possession. I, I, when I was watching them to prepare for this in some of the past, I, I stopped looking so much at De La Torre and started looking at what they're doing in possession. De La Torre, and part of the reason why I think it feels like he plays so slowly and, and negatively, meaning that he passes the ball laterally or backwards, is that he doesn't have options, right? You look and you watch him play. He's on the ball looking to go forward, and there's nothing there. And so he ends up passing the ball backwards because Heracles don't have a, a set positioning set up in possession they're not a good team when they have the ball they don't get a ton of possession they were dominated by PSV in that game that we've been discussing so that's that's why I believe we see so much of a difference between him with club and country or at least we're starting to see that difference is because Heracles is 12th in the area of they're far closer to relegation than they are to any team in the top of the the table in IX or PSV they're not very good. And I think that's why we don't see him push the tempo as much with Heracles as we did against Honduras with the with the national team. So that's my my little spiel on De La Torre. I think he's a good player. I, I'm certainly not 100% sold on his ability to impact the national team on a game-by-game, on a game-to-game basis, I should say. But I, I think he's going to look better with the U.S. than he does with Heracles. It does feel like there's a lot of those players for the United States, a lot of them playing centrally at that. That, like, there there was... There was like a little bit about his game that if Kellen Acosta played that way, and we've seen him be slow and get knocked off the ball on occasion for the United States, I think people would be really, really frustrated. And I think he's a player like Kellen Acosta who can have a next level performance and then a couple games later have a really poor performance and you don't quite know what to make of it. I would put him in that category, tier unknown, tier uncertain, tier, tier question mark. I don't know what it would be. I'm all about classification these days. But Joe, for the US, safe to say that you see him as one of those number eights? That's his ideal position? Without a doubt. Yeah, okay. I, I there's part of me, and I know, wow, I'm just really leaning all the way into the mad scientist thing today. Part of oh me wants to see him play as a six, but I don't think that's going to happen before the World Cup. I'm okay with some experimentation afterwards, but I think he has a lot of the rhythm-building attributes and, and the ground coverage that Graham mentioned. I think you're spot on there, Graham, to do that job well and to beat a lot of opposing attackers to the ball, clean up in the counter press, and then recycle possession and, and drive the ball forward. I think he could be good at that. But for now, yes, as one of those number eights. What? One of my concerns, if he is the McKenney replacement, is, and I realise this is a very simplistic point, but his goals and assists output is almost next to nothing this season. He's got one goal and zero assists in 23 league games. And yes, Heracles are, as Joe says, they're, they're not a particularly great team. So we maybe shouldn't read too much into that. But if the US, are, if the US, if you're looking at that attack... You know, Jesus Ferreira, you're going, okay, he's not much of a goal scorer, but other players are 
are bringing the goals and then you're going to Timo Weah on the right and you're, uh, Timothy Weah, mm-hmm. sorry, Timo's what they call them in Scotland, which was strange. Bring it back, uh, bring Timothy it back. Weah. Yeah, I like I'm down. Yeah, t- Timo Weah. Um, yeah, if, if we're looking at him going, okay, he's not much of a goal scorer, but other players are going to bring the goal and then Pulisic, well, okay, he <laughs> seems to be coming into form, but other players are going to bring the goals. And then McKenney is one of those players in the team who was bringing the goals. Now he's out, he's replaced by a player who doesn't score. Who's bringing the goals? That's my is my question. Robert um, Lewandowski. So yeah, that's this is yeah, a slight concern. <laughs> no, Graham, you're you're 100 right. We had a question asking us to compare and contrast De La Torre with McKenny. Yeah, and that's a huge difference. McKenny likes to play higher. He'll make more runs into the box. He's a more attacking player than De La Torre, and he has the production to match that scouting report. We don't see as much of that with De La Torre. He's just a different player, which presents different challenges and hurdles for the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, thank you for that reminder, Joe, that we had some questions. Uh, Joe, the other one we had, will he end up in midfield with Weston out? Second vote for this one, does Berhalter trust him enough or will he learn lean on Acosta, Musa, Adams, midfield in a do-or-die window? And I think the answer is he is one of the people that he like might be brought in. He'll definitely be in the camp, would be my guess, uh, competing for one of those spots with Moose and Adam starting. I think the other one remains open for Acosta, for Luca De La Torre, maybe for Busia or somebody else. It could be a number of different options, but I think he is in contention right now for sure. That's about as comfortable as I am predicting where he will be when we have that first uh, starting 11. Agreed. I'd be more surprised if he started against Mexico in game one than Panama in game two. I think he might be a better fit for that that second game in Orlando against Panama where he can drive the ball forward. Panama is going to be a bit more reactive than Mexico, certainly. I think he might be a good option for that game, but I wouldn't be surprised if he started against Mexico on yep. March 24th or if he didn't start at all in this window. We just don't have enough information about how Berhalter feels about him other than that he was impressed about De La Torre's performance against Honduras, but I maintain that that's not a ton to go on. This is in, this is not even meant to be as clunky of a transition as it's going to be. Joe, do we have an idea how Berhalter feels about Gabriel Slonina? Because I'm not sure that we do. I don't know if I can remember <laughs> any quotes about it other than that he was brought in uh, to camp in December just to, I think, to show him what camp is like, to let him know that he's on the radar. But uh, now we might not have Turner, we might not have Stefan uh, for these World Cup qualifiers. So what do we know about Gabriel Slonina? I'm on it. I'm on it. Well, first of all, his nickname is Gaga, which I think like is it. both weird and epic. And I'm just going to assume that it's epic because it's it's kind of fun to say. 17-year-old goalkeeper started 11 games for the fire at the end of last season is now their de facto starting goalkeeper. He started both of their games this year. He is the number one for Ezra Hendrickson. Uh, he's called up to the December friendly that you mentioned, Taylor against Bosnia and Herzegovina, called into January camp earlier this year, and then he went right from there into the World Cup qualifying roster. He was the the fourth goalkeeper, though, behind Zach Steffen and Matt Turner and Sean Johnson. In the past, he's played with the U15s, 16s, 17s, and 20s with the U.S. youth national teams. The thing that makes this conversation interesting right now, I guess there's two things. Number one, he is playing, and there aren't a lot of teenage, maybe no other teenage starting goalkeepers in Major League Soccer, and, and that hasn't happened a ton for Americans in the past. But the other thing is, Zach Steffen's injured and Matt Turner is injured right now. Steffen with a shoulder injury, Turner with a foot injury. We don't know if either one is going to be ready for the World Cup qualifying window later this month. It's kind of feeling like neither one is going to be ready, but we just don't have enough information about that yet. So the question is, okay, who on earth is going to get called up and who on earth is going to get minutes in in goal for the U.S. men's national team? And I'll go ahead and say it right now. I think we're all probably aligned on this. We don't expect it to be Gaga Salonina, right? It would be a pretty... 
strange move from Greg Berhalter to start a 17-year-old and goal in the most important World Cup qualifying window that the U.S. has had since 2017, right? That just doesn't feel likely. No. But still, this this opportunity presents an interesting uh, it, this is an interesting opportunity to look at what Gaga Salunina does, what he might be really good at down the road, and what he's already good at now in, in areas that he can grow as well. So I think that's why we're kind of using this as an excuse to look at his game. So if we are looking at his game, Joe, what do you like about it uh, so far from what you've seen? He's been a pretty darn good shot stopper for the fire dating back to last season. We don't have a big sample size, as I mentioned, just 11 games last year and two this year, 1170 minutes so far. But he's been a well above average shot stopper so far in those just over a thousand minutes. He's in the 77th percentile in post shot expected goals minus goals allowed per 90 minutes. Translator, because I know everyone wants that. Basically, that means he keeps shots out of the goal that are expected to go in at a better rate than most goalkeepers in MLS. Better than, than a lot of goalkeepers in MLS being in that 77th percentile. So I wanted to see after looking at those numbers, okay, what exactly does he do? What makes him a pretty good shot stopper or has made him a good one so far? He's a big guy, six foot three. He's, he gets down really well. This is probably what stood out to me most. He had a big save, and we mentioned this last week, I think. He had a big save on Ariel Lasseter in Chicago's opening game of the season that I think illustrates what he does very well. He's a big dude, but he can get low. He'll go down, and on this save in particular, he went down to his left all the way to the bottom left corner of the goal to stop a shot and to put it out wide for a corner. He had a good save down to the right, so the opposite side uh, opposite side against Columbus last season in the latter stages of 2021. He's got mobility in goal. He's got range. And I think those shots that go low are often the hardest ones for a goalkeeper to get to because you, you don't just jump up. You have to get your momentum going down towards the ground, which is not an easy thing to do, especially if your center of gravity is two-thirds of the way up the goal. So that really stood out to me in his shot-stopping ability. One other thing that I, I, I like bits and pieces of for Gaga Salinina is his distribution. He's not Ederson out here. He's not, you know, that that Terstegen type of goalie yet. But he can and has hit some nice passes with his right foot. He can open up his hips, play a chip ball out wide, or he'll find a central midfielder if they're open in central midfield, if they're really open in central midfield. He doesn't look supremely comfortable on the ball just yet with the with, with the ball at his feet. But I think that's understandable for a 17-year-old trying to find his way in Major League Soccer. I, I'm just encouraged by some of the tools and building blocks that it looks like Slonina has in distribution that pairs pretty well with his shot stopping. And I am reliably informed that when he does get low, it, it is capable of covering all the way from the window to the wall, I believe. Yes, uh, Graham, of course. Of you, course. You seemed, you seemed uh, to echo that he is big but good at the, uh, the shot stopping. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that, that stood out for me is how he's able to, to get down low. And in particular, he's very good at dealing with um, bouncing balls in, in front of the goalkeeper, which we all know can be very awkward and, and difficult to deal with. He seems to be able to get down, but not, not just get down, but actually deal with it as well, whether it's to kind of pam over the over the bar or push it away. He's, he's very good at that. Um, I also think he's very good at... Now, I'm going to say coming off his line here, when when you, when you people say that about goalkeepers, they think Manuel Neuer, and I don't necessarily mean that about Slonina. What I mean is actually in terms of coming off his line to collect crosses, he's very proactive in, in doing that. He's in the 91st percentile for uh, crosses stopped, and defenders just obviously love a goalkeeper who can come and claim a cross because that just releases so much pressure on them. It can help a, t- a team release up the pitch nice and quickly as well if his distribution is good, as Joe says. So, yeah, I think the fundamentals of uh, Slonina's game are, are pretty sound. I also like the talking about an intangible thing. He 
seems to be pretty confident in his own ability. Um, he was asked for his aim for the season this year in MLS with the Chicago Fire. He said he wanted to break the clean sheets record. <laughs> he's a, he's a 17-year-old playing his first full season for the Fire. The, the record is 16. He's got two out of two so far. So, uh, you know, only 14 to go to equal it, 15 to, to beat it. But I think with a goalkeeper, they're a slightly different uh, breed, <laughs> you could say. And I guess you want someone who is vocal and confident in her own ability and everything like that. And Slonina seems to, at a very young age, have a lot of those qualities. With the uh, very young age still kind of rough in his development, caveats, Graham, are there any other things that you think he needs to work on in particular? Um, I, slight, I I saw some kind of some instances of... of uh, slightly wild distribution i have to i have to say yeah, i true. slightly disagree with joe on that I, I think i think he he can distribute well but there were there were some instances where the, do you know the thing that stood out to me most of all with his distribution is he rarely gets anything beyond the halfway line i think in terms of his kicking power he might still be lacking a little bit he's 17 years old maybe that maybe that is to be expected but i i do think um, yeah, as I say, he, he rarely gets anything beyond the, the halfway line with some of his kicking, so that's m- maybe something to improve on there. Yeah, and I, I definitely wasn't trying to say he's a goaded distributor. I, <laughs> I feel like I, I took pains to say that he's not, so hopefully that, that's clear. He no, has potential true. to be a good one, and he has some good passes so far for Chicago, but yeah, he's not Neuer or Ter Stegen or Aderson. Yeah, you said he's better than Aderson, I believe is what I wrote down. Yeah, of course. And that's yeah, no, how I will remember He's it. just the next best goalkeeper ever. Yeah. <laughs> limit, limit, li, li, then instead of spending a ton of time, it took me a minute to get that one out, Porky Pig style, uh, instead of spending a ton of time breaking down <laughs> a very young goalkeeper, let me ask you all this question, uh, which came to us from a couple different people. Uh, but Jared Reebok, whoever is talking about Slonina, I would love to hear on a scale of 1 to 10 how comfortable they would be with him starting at the Azteca. Graham, since you are, I think, like, you know, the, the casual USMNT fan, but maybe less so uh, the uh, lives and dies by the team fan, maybe you can answer this one with a bit more uh, real-world grounding than me or Joe. So... I think Slonina himself would be a straight 10 and comfortable with being in that mm-hmm. situation. I think he fancies himself for the high-pressure environment. Me, um, uh, I'll put myself straight bang in the middle of the road five. I think I think I because of that mindset and him uh, believing in himself and really kind of being quite vocal, I would be more confident in him than a lot of 17-year-old goalkeepers to play at the Azteca away in, in a World Cup qualifier. But equally so, it's it's an environment he's never experienced before and a team he has never played in before, a back line he's never played behind before. So yeah, it, it would it would not be a particularly comfortable uh, thing to have happen. Joe, I'm just going to assume that you agree that maybe Slonina starting would not fill you with confidence against Mexico? Yeah, I was going to say a two. So Graham was more generous than I was on that scale. <laughs> and we don't know for sure that that Stefan Turner won't be able to play, right? It's just like they both Not are carrying injuries. Yeah. They've missed time, but they still could. So maybe this is a little bit too reactionary. But Joe, if if neither of them can go, who is the goalkeeper that you are most confident in? Uh, I would say like most confident with the least amount of confidence, I'm guessing. Probably Ethan Horvath. It's, yeah. it's got to be Ethan Horvath or Sean Johnson, right? I think those are the only, I mean, Brad Guzan, maybe, but I, I'm not really sold on him as mm-hmm. a shot stopper at this point in his career. I think it's one of those two guys. I wish we had, and I don't have access to this, 
the the numbers on Ethan Horvath for Nottingham Forest in terms of the shot stopping, but I think one of those two guys, you have someone with more experience. You have someone who can really organize a defense from goal and be that communicating presence on set pieces and an open play. I think you want one of those two guys in goal for Greg Berhalter if Turner or Stefan can't go. Wasn't there a time when Stefan Fry was going to be able to play for the United States? What happened to that? I don't I don't remember, Taylor. There's so many. I mean, again, I'll add it to my, my dual national FIFA paperwork filing. Yeah, but please. He's got to be a U.S. Do. citizen. By, he's got to be eligible by now. Yeah. W- would he, if he could play, Joe, would you be most comfortable with him starting with the absences that we've talked about? <laughs> where, where, Taylor, where did this come from? I'm just coming up with goalkeepers um, now, baby. Uh, no, probably not. I'd probably still go Sean John or, or Ethan Horvath. Okay, cool. I didn't. I Timelia, Timelia Taylor. I can. We can play this game. Timelia for you. <laughs> Bill Amid, get him in there. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Uh, I did enjoy when Bruce Arena was was still the coach, and it was basically whoever the Galaxy goalkeeper was was getting was getting called into camp. That's just how it worked. <laughs> David uh, Bingham, anyone? <laughs> yup. <laughs> that happened. Uh, Graham, I know you've got a lot of notes prepared on David Bingham. Do you want to get to those now, or you want to hold on, them off for a later show? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, that is a blast from the past for me from when I used to do uh, MLS previews in the MLS newsletter. Yeah. I mean, sure, that's a name I know. I don't know between the two of you who I would expect. Joe would have more notes on David Bingham. No no disrespect, Graham. But I feel like both of you would have significantly more in your archives than I would. Uh, Gentlemen, we've talked about five players for the U.S. We've gone in-depth. We've answered some questions about them. Anything else to add about anyone we've talked about, Joe Lowry or Graham Ruffin? My my vocal cords Um, are feeling it, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I'm. I'm just going to uh, say let's um, adopt the Timo Weah name yep. that he was for Timo. some reason given in Scotland and it stuck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like it, Timo Weah. All right, I'm writing it down, Graham. I will write down Timo for you. Uh, and on that note, Graham Ruffin, thank you for giving us the name Timo, for giving us the tier system, and for talking about all the players we talked about today. Thank you, Taylor. That was that was a that was a fun one. I enjoyed that. Me as well, Joe Lowry. I enjoyed that, and I am very excited for all the paperwork paperwork you'll soon be filing. I think it's gonna <laughs> you're gonna have to buy some stamps. I'm guessing there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, mailers going out. It's true. Yeah, lots of stamps, lots of paperwork. My hands gonna be cramping, but it'll all be worth it. I appreciate it. Joe, listeners, we appreciate your listening. We'll be back with some listener questions. Uh, I believe is that tomorrow we're doing listener questions, fellas. <laughs> Yep, yep. Uh, There we go. Yes. Schedules. All right. On that note, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.